Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. I'm introducing you today to Portia Nelson. She was an American singer, songwriter, poet, actress, author. If you are a fan of the classic musical, The Sound of Music, you might recognize her as one of those stern and salty nuns from the film, always trying to stamp out mischief or anything that resembled a good time. She was also a longtime character on a soap opera, All My Children. But she excelled on the classic cabaret stage in the 1950s. Magnificent voice, an actor's instinct and presence. She had reoccurring bouts with cancer, cancer of the breast, of the throat, of the tongue, so she lost her ability to sing in midlife, but she did not lose her voice. She turned to the pen, to story, to poetry. Her most famous piece, oftentimes attributed to an anonymous author, is called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. It is not anonymous. It belongs to Portia Nelson from her book, There's a Hole in My Sidewalk. Some of you will recognize it. If you have never heard it, then I am so pleased to share it with you today. Autobiography in five short chapters. Chapter one. I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. And it takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two. I walk down the same street, there is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I am in this same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street, there is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it there, I still fall in. It's a habit. But my eyes are open, I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down another street. And there you have it. That is a pretty good pattern for changing your habits. A pattern maybe even for changing your life. It could be the 12 steps summarized in 150 or so words. The precise way that anyone moves to maturity, to transformation, to experiencing some kind of spiritual formation. You see the dangers, you recognize your triggers, you take responsibility for your decisions and even your failures, and then you go in a different direction. Portia Nelson is brilliant in her simplicity. Why wouldn't the patriarch Job not follow this advice? It was the solution offered to him 
by his friends, you know. The story of Job is one of the oldest stories we have. Not just from the Bible, but from anywhere in the world. It's as old, scholars think, as the time of Abraham. And is set in either Mesopotamia or Egypt. Whatever, whoever the unknown scribe was, he took this story that no doubt had been passed along in oral tradition and shaped the narrative to ask a fundamental question that remains unanswered. Siri's trying to answer a question right over here to my left somewhere. To ask a fundamental question that remains unanswered all these millennia later. How can there be a benevolent and just God when there is so much evil and injustice in the world? Equally as old, and the corollary to the how is the why. Why do bad things happen to good people? Theophany is the technical term for these questions. Job's friends thought they had an answer. Their solution was a primitive one, but one that remains popular even today. Bad things don't happen to good people. Bad things happen to those who deserve it. If tragedy overtakes your life, it is something that you did wrong. You see, Job had lost everything. All of his goats and cows, the very means of wealth in the ancient Middle East, they were stolen and his farmhands were murdered by thieves. A lightning strike, fire from heaven, killed all his sheep and all of his shepherds. Raiders rode across his homestead and stole all his camels. He had ten children. They were at the oldest son's house having a party. And a tornado struck their home and killed everyone inside. All of this happened on a single morning. A few days later, Job loses his health. He is struck down with some ulcerating disease. His skin becomes an open wound His joints burn as if they are on fire. And he sits down to grieve in the ashes of what used to be his life. It is then that his wife gives up. And she tells him, you should curse God and die. And then these friends arrive. The original Job's comforters. And they tell Job that he has fallen into that hole in the sidewalk of his own volition. This is his own fault. Job, you must have done something terrible for all of this tragedy to rain down on you. A good person wouldn't be suffering like this. And the way they saw it, being the Easterners that they were, was karmic. Your deeds have caught up with you. You are suffering because you are a sinner. And God has meted out the justice that you deserve. We thought you were a good man, Job, but obviously not or all this bad stuff would not have happened to you. Some comforters, right? I have told this story too many times. But I'm going to tell it again because it is, the, it is one of, it might be the forming story of my entire life. It continues to shape my theology. My younger brother was incredibly ill as a child. He was born with mitral valve 
prolapse. And 40 years ago, in an infant, that was almost always a death sentence. He had open heart surgery at six months of age. He had full multi-system collapse following that. Adding excruciating further pain, he developed a staph infection in his right elbow. And almost barbarically, the medical staff of what is now Children's Health Care of Atlanta had to amputate his right arm to save his life. My parents were not hardly in their 30s yet, and I can't imagine as a parent what that would have been like. I was there, but I wasn't the parent of that child. I was there when our pastor arrived, the pastor from that little fundamentalist mountain church, and it was sometime around Easter, 1979. I know it was around Easter because I had my Easter suit on at the hospital. It was blue. Big fanned legs, bell-bottom style. Collars that I could have flown across a room with. I was eight years old. Our family was peeking in through the ICU glass, ICU glass at my brother, and he was layered with so many tubes and so many tapings and, and so many bandages that all you could see were his eyes and the soles of his feet. And that preacher said to my parents, standing there that afternoon, surely someone has committed some grievous sin in your family for God to visit this judgment on you. I'm not going to stop telling that story. I will tell it my entire life because it is a damnable lie. I knew it was BS only as a child can know things at eight years of age. My parents weren't perfect, God knows. But just how much evil can an army veteran mill worker with three kids to support and a 28-year-old mother and wife who going to Atlanta 90 minutes away was the furthest distance she'd ever traveled from home, how much evil can a couple like that even commit? Enough evil to justify this kind of suffering for an innocent child? I don't know how my parents maintained their composure that day. I would have told him to get the hell out of here and I never want to see you again. I would have. And Jesus would have forgiven me for saying that. I suppose Job didn't have enough energy left to tell his friends that. They just hang around for 42 chapters. And here is the drama of their story. The opening line of the book of Job says this. There once was a man named Job who was blameless. A man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. That's the opening line. Whatever Job is suffering... And whatever the reason, it is not because of what he has done or not done. No reason is ever given. Those 42 agonizing chapters of suffering and question and dialogue between Job and his friends, and yes, finally between Job and God, and never is an explanation given. Not one. The rain 
falls on the just and the unjust. Sometimes karma just goes off the rails. The best people will suffer the worst injustice. And the worst people will never get the comeuppance that they deserve. Life isn't a math problem with easy inputs and predictable outcomes. And sometimes we don't fall into the hole in the sidewalk because we failed or because we were wrong. We are shoved into that abyss by circumstances that we cannot explain or control. And no friend or enemy or wingtip wearing preacher in a cold waiting room can give an explanation that makes sense or eases the pain. You'll see that the, mo- that the worst things can happen to the best people. You'll see that. You'll see that sometimes there is no answer to the question of how or to the question of why. There is only the question to ask an answer of what. What do we do when we don't know what to do? And the question of where. Where do you go when you don't know which way to go? I have an answer for that. You just keep going. You just keep moving. Even when it feels like God is a thousand miles away. Job said, if I only knew where to find God, I would go there. I go east, but he is not there. I go west, but I cannot find him. I do not see him in the north, for he is hidden. I look to the south. But he is concealed. What a contrast to another perspective from the wisdom tradition of the Jewish people. In Psalm 39, David says this. If I go to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me, your strength will support me. Even in darkness I cannot hide from you. To you the night shines as bright as day. Job can't find God, can't even get a glimpse of God, and David can't get away from God. Which author should we believe? Both of them. Because that is how it is. Because this is how life is. This is how faith is. Haven't you had those times in life where faith is easy? The alignment of the stars is just perfect. The sun is shining. Nothing but blessing. Maybe you found love. Maybe you got that job. You closed that sale. You watched that perfect sunset. You had such an intense awareness of the presence of God that it just squeezes the tears out of your face. And then there are tears for different reasons. When everything has gone wrong, when everything is in the toilet, there's nothing but despair and suffering and abandonment, or at least that's the only feeling that you can come up with. Then it's exactly as C.S. Lewis described his own search for comfort after his wife died. She died of breast cancer just three years into their marriage. This giant of faith who wrote more Christian classics than most any English author, and this experience completely disassembled him. This is what he wrote in a grief observed. He said, go to God when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face. And the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside after that silence. You might as well turn away. 
The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might as well be an empty house. What can this mean? Why is God so present in our time of prosperity and so very absent in time of trouble? There is no one that has lived the true life of faith that has not arrived at those very questions in their lives. It's such an honest expression of how life is, how far away God seems. And it's that honesty that led C.S. Lewis to go on and to say later, God knows our situation. God will not judge us as if we have no difficulties to overcome. What matters is our sincerity and our perseverance. That is the only answer we have. Job has no comfort, only sorrow. He has no direction. He has tried all of those. But he presses on. One step at a time. One stubborn contrary inch at a time. With what feels like concrete around his ankles. A heavy bag of question marks on his back. Tears streaming down his face. And all the speed of a snail. But he presses on. Forget this stuff that you have heard about the patience of Job. Job was not patient. He was angry. He felt offended. He felt betrayed. He shook his fist at heaven. He was not patient. But Job persevered. And there's a difference between those two things. He griped. He complained. He lodged his complaints with the master of the universe. And he kept going. That's a little bit of what faith looks like. Antonio Machado was a Spanish poet from the previous century and he lived during one of Spain's most violent and confusing times. His country's civil war separated him from those that he loved, forced him from his home and eventually across the border into France where he died of pneumonia on the run as a young man. He felt the constant pull to take sides, to hate, to kill. He was often confused, the deep waters of his soul turning and churning, and he wrote this as much to himself as to anyone else. Traveler, there is no path. The path is made by walking. Traveler, the path is your tracks and nothing more. Traveler, there is no path. The path is made by walking. By walking, you make the path. That is faith. Faith is not, it is not having all the answers. There are no answers to some questions. Faith is not being protected from trouble or from suffering or cancer or poverty or loss. It's not this gullible smile even though your heart is breaking sentimental rubbish that is nothing more than wishful thinking. And faith is certainly not a big payoff where if I just believe, then all my wishes will come true. Faith might be simple, but it is not naive. Its eyes are open. It sees the world for what it is and how it is. And it knows that there are no shortcuts, no easy fixes, no silver bullets, and sometimes no sight or sound of God Himself. But in faith there is tenacity. There is going on, there is moving on, and there is keeping on. There is putting one step in front of the other, sometimes when you can't even see where that one step will land. The path is made by walking. Do you remember the Merton prayer? 
the most amazing thing Thomas Merton wrote, and he wrote a lot. And over the years, I've put it on the screen a dozen times. I'm getting old now, and so I'm just repeating myself now in these years. And God, this needs to be repeated. It should probably be read daily. I'm going to read it aloud, and then I think maybe we say it as a benediction together. I love it. My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I know that you will lead me by the right road though I may not know anything about it. Therefore will... I trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils.